you forget only the things you want to forget, someone said. If I tried to visualise the whole of my 20 years detention in an asylum, if I attempted to produce a ship's log account of the day-to-day -day events, of the dreary hospital routine, it would be comparable to a hazy vision or a vast sea called memory. My thoughts revolve and dwell for an instant or two on more unforgettable aspects, which I can remember at will. The years there seemed like eternity to me, and yet when I left, they dropped from me like an old garment that I expect never to see again. I went into the big house, an impulsive, uninhibited girl, and I left a cautious, subdued, almost servile woman. I am now a sadder, but a wiser woman, and one who can say with certainty that knowledge and freedom are happiness. Hannah Greeley, 1971. Oh, um, well, a lot of people thought she was daft as a coach, and a lot of people wouldn't have had, wouldn't have had much time for her, because they didn't really realise the trauma and things that she went through. People who didn't know her, we'll say, who just knew, because oh, there's Joanna Greedy with the bag of bones, you know, that kind of way. Um, no one wished her harm, or no one thought she was harmful, or, you know, they didn't really think about her. Well, they were aware of her. I mean, my neighbours would say, I say you had Johanna today, yeah. and they'd be laughing at the thought of it, you know, because I'd be saying, well... I'd be saying when she'd be coming in the yeah, gate. Dinner gone. <laughs> no, when she'd be coming in the gate, I hoped I wouldn't follow her because I would contradict her, you know. Mm. And I would say to her as quick as lightning, when she'd say something, Joanne, don't be daft. But she never took umbrage at that, you know. She was accepted. Do you know what I mean? But uh, you wouldn't be too fond of giving her a lift home from town to give her a lift in, all right. But would you be delighted to be bringing home bags of smelly bones? I remember Hannah as this woman who had very different skin. Her skin was brown and she smoked a cigar. And when she'd come to our house, she used to have this mac. It was like a rain mac. It was kind of cream, but it could have been any colour because it was that old. And she'd sometimes have a, a scarf on her head that she'd tie at the back to keep her hair down. And there'd be a bit of hair sticking out at the front. But that'd be always be a different colour to the rest of her hair. Because that was cigar stained as well. She wasn't somebody who came, you know, very properly dressed. She just landed out of the blue, you know, on the most uninvited occasions. Um, she, she liked oranges or she brought oranges to us as gifts. And like, right, fruit in her time was a big treat. Now to us it wasn't as big a treat but at the same time she'd bring them and present them in such a way that this was like Santa Claus arriving. So this smell of oranges and the cigar was like that was Hannah. You'd know she was in the house when you'd open the back door because you'd smell her. I once asked the superintendent what he thought I was detained for and he said I needed a rest after my nervous breakdown. So that's it I thought. Now I wonder what mother has said to him. I guessed she had used some well-worn cliché, but this was novel. Mother and I had agreed that I needed a rest and that the big house was the only place to go in the circumstances. 
Mother confessed that she had had some interviews with him on my behalf. Therefore, I must assume that I had a nervous breakdown by proxy. Mother intimated also that I was complicated and difficult to diagnose. This was hardly her own opinion, which was that I was simple and easily led. I remember Hannah when I was young. She was older than I was. She was tall and willowy. And she walked with a spring in her step. She loped along. The walk of a queen. Yes. And she had a red auburn hair in a bob. And I can still see her in a grey flannel two-piece. But she was lovely. Lovely to look at. But uh, a kind of ethereal always. <laughs> the big words are barely coming in today. Yes, how about that? You think you're the only one that knows one over four. Well. <laughs> We're doing well. Hannah went to the bower and she was very clever and Hannah wrote um, poetry for the local paper and she'd be up walking beside the Shannon at six o'clock in the morning which was very far in that lawn because it's down in Holland they don't get up early in that lawn and you know writing poetry was very old three at that time but um, Hannah was sent nursing to guys I think it must have been during the war now it was a big thing to get into guys and as far as I know, she was out in Wilston General and she was bombed out of that. She went out through a window in a bomb thing and she came home very badly shocked. And when she came home, she found that the, the big shop underneath was set to a butcher's and the officers used to drink in the drawing room and the soldiers drank in a kind of a bar at the back and money was scarce and... It was a big shock to her system and I think that was the thing that the last straw. Yeah. I finished the orange and as mother took up her handbag and shopping bag I felt suddenly afraid. Afraid of her apparent ignorance of the mental hell that I was in. Of her seeming indifference to her departure now imminent. Loneliness. Bitter, lonely tenderness for her surged inside me which I could not show now as she was smiling bravely and kissing me on my bed-damp cheek with that rare butterfly touch she reserved, especially for me. I hated myself then for failing her. She had expected so much of me. I had resigned because of her, really. How could I work healing others, to put it sublimely? How could I work far across the sea while she was alone, struggling against the grain? Now she had to explain to friends, invent and keep up appearances. I choked out goodbye, somehow and returned her kiss, and suddenly I knew she'd forgiven me. I also, in my childish way, had gone against the grain, like an empty, wind-tossed kite. We lived two doors down, and her mother was extremely wealthy in her youth, had a big business and had farms of land in an island in the Shannon, and she was an only child. The mother was, baby Marie. It was, a, in my memory, it was a corner... It was on a corner and had two doors from two different streets with mosaic on the floor, Marie on the floor. And as a child, I remember the big brass uh, rails round the counter. When we became poor, she had few clothes, for she was a widow. I hated black. The men with the black top hats who took Daddy away. They left a big black crepe bow on the knocker of the hall door and they never walked on the sawdust in the shop, but ate it on the ham at the long table. There were so many black top hats, black suited shadows, and they came back again in every nightmare. That was long ago. I was five and mother twenty-five. 
Black clothes meant sadness, but Mother wore little white pique collars and cuffs. When I was 16, she wore navy. She seemed to suffer all alone, and I suffered for her secretly, silently. I would sit, hunched up in the squashed chamber of my heart, worrying, desperately anxious to help, but unable to do so. She was always selling or renting something. In the beginning, it was always something big, like Monk's Island and the river at home. She had inherited it and sold it for a song when father died, to pay death duties, she said. A hundred pounds for a hundred acres. Today it sounds fantastic, but mother was satisfied. What use was a lonely hermitage to her? Alas, her furs went also, and the best silver, which used to be in the red velvet box in the best mahogany wardrobe. When the wardrobe was sold, among other things, life became very austere indeed. I first saw Hannah Greeley in a restaurant in Roscommon in the mid-1980s, one summer lunchtime. I was there, I was working as a journalist in the Roscommon Champion. I was with a colleague, Declan O'Byrne, and Declan pointed this woman out to me and said, do you know that woman? That's Hannah Greeley. She's written a book about her life in St. Lomans. And I was immediately, as a journalist, fascinated, intrigued, um, slightly scared by what what he told me about the story. But I noticed her with a bunch of women and uh, she seemed like a very ordinary, late middle-aged woman. And I noticed something which I think became significant later on, but I I noticed that, that she seemed to have a slight impairment with one of her hands. When I got to know her story, this somehow became more important. My curiosity was sort of raging inside me and I rang the... Uh, library in Roscommon asked had they the book in stock and immediately within a matter of an hour an hour and a half had had retrieved the book from the library so it all happened very fast I was completely stunned and astonished and shocked and disturbed and uh, by the book and spent quite a considerable amount of time then for the remainder of that summer thinking about doing an interview with her I think really it was the stigma that did me in and I was afraid to interview her. Um, another reason why I, I didn't interview her, and again, this is something that's a little bit, I feel great regret about this, and a little bit of shame, but I was very young at the time, was I think there was something about, once I read the story about how she damaged her hand in St. Lomans and the pain and the agony of that, and her hand somehow became almost like a symbol of the wounding of the person. And I suppose I was probably just too young and felt the stigma too much and was too scared by um, having to talk to somebody who had undergone such such a horrific experience. The bath nurse's voice came towards me as from a great distance. Will you be bathed now, Honor? Bathed? I repeated vaguely. Oh, yes, nurse. I'll be there in a minute. I undressed and joined the queue for baths and weighing in. I clutched my bath towel around my naked body fiercely, not daring to speak to anyone. I would be a query now. I could imagine the voices. I thought Honor was going home. Won't they take her out? This would go on and on. 
until my home and person would be a legend. The bath brought me back to the present or the past. It didn't really matter, present or past. I could say there is nothing to contradict me. Time begins with this bath or in this queue. I have just about as much interest now in time as the sea has in the obliging rivers. I go in at last. I must have waited an hour, but that is unreal here. I'll say 15 queue deep time. Most appropriate. I am weighed and it is written down. I step up to the ghastly bath unit. I wait for the half-cold douche of washing soda and soapy water poured down on me from a swan-like enamel jug with routine detachment. It stings my upturned, screwed-up face. I close my eyes tighter and bow my head and hold it steady as it is lathered. The soap cloths are applied vigorously. Another jug of rinsing water is poured over me and I step out again from the devil-invented soda fountain, too miserable to recollect what I had decided to think about and too tired to care. Oh, Lord, I read it in one sitting and cried all the way through. And we have autographed copies. We have, yes. Uh, but uh, I knew Johanna because she was next door neighbour and it was the saddest thing I ever read. The saddest thing I ever read. I read it once. And I would never, you know, sometimes if you enjoy something or even if you're learning something from a book, you'll go back to read it again. But I couldn't bear to go back to read that again. It upset me so much that that, that could have happened and that we were all around. It was more than the, the abuse in the church and all those things that we did nothing about any of it. At that stage, if you went to a mental hospital... People just didn't think about you coming out again. Oh, no. No. They didn't, they didn't no. want to know you because... No. Was, you know. Have a society, you know. Yeah. It's a, we can blame the religious orders about abuse, but let her frack in the industrial school. That was what this society expected and, ha- and tolerated. They didn't inquire anymore. So if you went to a mental hospital, uh, I, don't hear, I don't remember ever hearing of anybody coming out again. Yeah, I, I agree with that now that, you know, not that... I suppose we probably knew of people who were... Away, and I mean the the biggest threat was, uh, or you'll end up in Ballinasloe because Ballinasloe is the mental yeah. hospital. If you're not careful, you know all that those kind of it was kind of uh, you know derogatory, and uh, it, was, it certainly wasn't uh, those places at that time were intended to help people, to make them get better or be able to go out and take their place in life. You just you went in there and you stayed there. It was a place, it was a dustbin for people who were slightly different. Some people may have needed a lot of care mentally, but you didn't have to be too strange to be in a mental hospital. I'm sure people went to see them or that, but very seldom. And then they themselves got institutionalised. The miracle was that Johanna didn't get institutionalised. That's because she had such a great spirit and a great mind. You know. Mother arrived, looking very businesslike, on her next visit and greeted me with her usual love and tenderness, handing me the usual paper bags. Some little extras for you, dear. We were now in a small waiting room, specially reserved for visitors. Mother, of course, was not aware of our privilege, being left alone. She nibbled a chocolate meditatively. Well, dear, I am here again. I'm so glad to see you, Mother. I'm all excited at the thought of leaving. Have you written the letter, you know, the application, because... The chocolate-eaten mother turned all her attention to me. Well, dear, 
That is what I want to talk to you about. Money is very scarce. I've taken in two paying guests. I will have to sleep in your room myself, Honour. It's so difficult to explain, dear. I know how disappointed you'll be having to wait a little longer. Honour, to tell you the truth, I haven't been feeling well lately. I gave a little gasp of anguish and disappointment all mixed up together. Mother, what will I do now? The doctor said I may go as soon as you send in the application. I was all ready to go. It's not fair. I shan't stay here. It's hell. Really it is, Mother. You would not want me to have a relapse now, dear. You might lose sleep and appetite and worry about me. Please, Mother, you can't say such a thing. I assure you I'd be far happier and well at home with you, no matter what the inconveniences, than in this horrible place. What did the superintendent say? He, Mother said slowly, thought that in these circumstances, my health especially, dear, that as I was unprepared to take you out, that he could not discharge you. Not just yet. The article that I wrote, which was published last year, was an attempt to kind of reread the book, um, given what we know now about psychiatric institutions, about mental illness, about Ireland in the 1940s and 50s. So our understanding now is very different. But one of the things that struck me when I read the book was that it's a journey of a descent, really, through various stages of deprivation and humiliation. Hannah spent the first six months, and this is recorded very lovingly and in great detail in the book, she spent the first six months in the admissions ward, which was the closest to the perimeter, the closest to the outside. And during her time there, Hannah was convinced that her release was pending every moment, every day, every week, her release was pending. When she moved beyond that the possibility of release on her mother's death. She then moved into deeper, slightly deeper, physically deeper into the institution, but also deeper into the grip of the institution, into something called the Long Trench, which was a, a ward where the long-term patients were held. And then the, the third and the final and the deepest place she found herself, where I think the greatest humiliation and the greatest stripping of her dignity occurred, was in a place called a hold. Um, so we can see the book as depicting that descent deeper and deeper down. Now, there is also the ascent at the end of the book when she moves finally, eventually, into um, the place from which she eventually found her release. If you were in Long Trench, it was said, and you as much raised your voice, you might be seized immediately by four or five nurses and rushed below to no hope hold. There you were tamed or shamed to become dispirited and hopeless. You would meet there the cream of the big house, the wild indomitables, the super eccentrics, the dreamers who no longer wanted reality. Strange though, the pot did not call the kettle black there. It just nodded and said, hello, you're sooty too. The other issue that I think the book portrays is how the stigmatisation of the mentally ill worked in these total institutions. But the very fact that you have crossed the threshold is evidence that you must be um, insane or you must be mad because why else would you be in there? The institution, once you are inside and the authority figures in the institution, the psychiatrists, the nurses, etc., all then have the power to label all of your behaviour, whatever your behaviour is, as even further evidence of your instability, the fact that you might be a threat to yourself, that you are unstable and so on. So each of Hannah's escape attempts, 
which we would now see as, you know, an expression of sanity and of great, great capacities for self-help and for um, to to act on one's own desires and needs were actually read and put into the book as further evidence of how she was a threat to herself and how she was, in fact, insane and, and, and quite mad. Weeks, months, years passed. Four Christmases more were celebrated and still I had no offer of freedom. I received the usual duty cards and the occasional duty parcel with a letter. I wrote begging letters to every relative I could think of, pleading with them to take me out, just for a week, so that I could have an address and reference to apply for a job outside. The few letters I did receive in return were not replies to my request. They were carefully, coldly worded letters, ignoring completely my pleas. They wrote of their own trivial domestic cares, pretending they were major crises for 20 years. For 20 years I was informed occasionally of these domestic crises, their worldly progress and their ambitions, especially their ambitions. She sat in pyjamas, that's what I remember from the book, and they took them away and they gave her, I suppose, a nightshirt. And it it was the attitude... Then, so we're talking about, we're talking about the 50s. Uh, at that stage, I don't think they were called um, mental nurses, psychiatric nurses. They were called warders, I think. I don't know. I no, didn't I know that. No, I don't know. But it, she was there and there was, it's much to say, well, you're here now and that's it. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that, that, that was, that was it, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah there was... But no. did, her, her own nice clothes She couldn't wear them or she wasn't allowed. The ogress emerged from her office cell and threw my blue pyjamas at me. There they are. And don't let me or the patient see you going about in them without your dressing gown. Understand? She roared. They were damp and crushed, but they were so familiar. Mine. Mother had bought them for me. Oh, yes, of course. Thank you. I must keep them in good condition for going out. Home. I faltered here. I had no home now. My home was no more. Strangers lived there now. A cruel, almost vindictive expression came into her eyes. You will never go home, she rasped. You have no home. Nobody wants you. She stopped and waited for the effect of her words. I am not insane. The doctor has written to my relatives saying I am fit and well and I can go when they claim me. They don't want you. And the longer you're here, the longer they'll leave you. Forever. I will get out, you'll see. There is such a thing as justice. I will. No. She repeated this with an obvious sadistic delight, revelling, yet hypocritically shaking her head dolefully, negatively. Yes, I said. No, she repeated in the same way. My heart constricted. I felt like the pendulum of an ancient clock that had been grabbed and sent whizzing madly by a vandal's hand. The hot tears trickled down my cheeks. If only I had not thrown away those tablets. I raised my hand, sudden rage blinding me to the consequences, and smashed it through the narrow, sturdy little pane of glass, one of the many of the barred windows beside me. I felt no pain. I was so enraged. I still looked at her. 
questioning, entreaty for justice, compassion behind my tears, challenging, daring her to say I had no hope, my hand still raised. The mask at last had dropped from her face. It was no longer provocative and ignorant. It was malevolent, satisfied. Now, you'll never get out at all. If we think about everyday life, we create and recreate our identities as human beings constantly, every day, through our social interactions with our family, our friends, our neighbours, in our workplace, and that this identity is constantly created. And once people enter total institutions, including psychiatric institutions, they begin a journey of stripping of that process of creating and recreating their identity. And they enter into a world where they are controlled by the institution, their physical space is constrained, their behaviour is totally constrained, they learn to perform, to play a role. And, and we can see Hannah doing all of this performance in the book. And she eventually was brought to a place of what's called civil death. In other words, she died as a person. During those five years, I often prayed for a firing squad. Something quick and clean anyway. I was allowed out of bed, but only just, to the toilet and to the weekly bath. I was kept under constant supervision. I was now considered unpredictable and a danger to smug officialdom. The days and months passed wearily, until one day I noticed that my healed hand was different to the other. The cuts had healed, but the tendon projected awkwardly in the palm of my hand. It had contracted and the hand was odd-looking. I began to feel restless, which feeling soon changed to recklessness. A ludicrous plan formed in my imaginative brain. Nurse! Nurse, come quickly! The toilet! Honor is hanging herself in the toilet! we could say that our response to confinement in psychiatric hospital was at its greatest madness during this period. There's a quite a striking figure in 1958 what's called the pinnacle of confinement was reached in Ireland when about 21,000 people were in asylums or mental hospitals and that amounted to 0.7% of the population which is quite extraordinary and most of these psychiatric hospitals were were whole towns in themselves, essentially, or like villages. Um, and there were high walls keeping people out and the high walls keeping people in. They had farms, they had uh, huge staff. Very often when people entered, they never, they never came out again. Hannah was very lucky that she was released. But she was released really on foot of the setting up of the Commission of Inquiry into the Mental Hospitals, which happened in 1961. Um, and that commission, the setting up of that commission and its subsequent report probably brought about the greatest sea change in our attitude. In other words, this very slow shifting away from this insanity of permanently confining people behind high walls. Her book then, which came out in the early 70s, to me is 
really significant in its recording of that life because it's the only record we have, as far as I know, in Ireland of the insider's view of this period. Two years later, the superintendent retired and a new superintendent took over. And with his coming, things changed for the better. Rosie said she had seen four supers there in her day and that the first thing they do is to give paroles to express their goodwill. About a dozen, Rosie considered. A dozen out of 3,000 patients. Now, darling, don't be discouraged. Ask him for a parole. He will or he will not. When he reads my case history, from what I know of certain nurses and staff imagination and expression, what do you think of him, Rosie? Time will tell. I heard from one of the maids that he's very easygoing. Wait and see. I heard just recently that conditions will improve in places like this soon. Why, even now, Honour, over in the admission, I believe patients there are coming and going as they please. Voluntary, they call it. It's too late for me, Rosie. I would have been voluntary, as I just needed a rest. But that time, Rosie, there was no such thing as the voluntary patients act or whatever they call it. Both my parents are dead. My home is sold. And my only brother refuses to claim me out. And he's not legally compelled to do so. Look on the bright side, darling. Good days are coming. Mark my words. One day in the laundry, the superintendent called me. Your chance, Honour, it's come, he said. My heart jumped. What could he mean? He explained in detail. A new rehabilitation centre had been opened and he had been requested to send two or three of his patients there. I was overjoyed. In fact, I could not believe it. Liberty in view at last. Authorised freedom. I said, with random exhilaration... At last, may I really leave here? My relations cannot stop me. They don't count. Not as far as I'm concerned. Hannah came to Roscommon. She had got um, an advance on... She had serialised bird's nests up in England. Yeah, and she had also worked now in England as a housekeeper yes. when she was let out of the hospital and saved she money. Hus- yeah. She saved the money to buy this little cottage. She was housekeeper to a retired doctor and when he died she came home and she wanted to be buried in Ireland. So when she serialised Bird's Nest Soup in England she had about £600 we know she paid for the cottage. She bought a, a, a vested cottage and it was in fierce repair and she took up the floorboards so wrapped and she put in cement floors herself and she made gates of the floorboards and everything. She wasn't afraid of hard work. She had great faith, but she didn't parade her. She wasn't, you know, she didn't talk about it. That's probably what kept her going, her faith. Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. That and the dogs. That and the dogs. She bred the dogs, you know. And then when the... the, Yeah. And when the... Peter. Peter. Peter out of Francis. And then they'd have pups and she'd sell the pups. And we were awful work then if she couldn't get them sold at the stage where you couldn't give dogs away. She was selling them. As vicious probably as, as her dogs. Because she had because they weren't used. She never let anyone in. Oh, she'd have to put all the dogs into a bedroom or something. She'd go because they'd be barking and oh no. 
every butcher in town and there were tabasco's in our hall, you know, the key was opposite the door. And you'd get the smell and it would take a week for them and they'd be back again the next week. And you how those dogs had, and there were lumps of fat and everything, you know. And she, and she hawked those and she hitched home and hitched Now people knew her, you know, and she'd be on the there hitching and people were very good now okay. and they, they should get in with all these bags of bones and yeah. our messages it wouldn't be the nicest thing to have in your car. no and the bones probably were in the butchers for a week I used to collect 10 shillings every week from people and it came to about 3 pound 10 shillings and uh, I'd go down to Vincent McManus and pay and he'd leave out the the gas tour but like she didn't Acknowledge that. No, no, not really. You know, and I, you know, she, um, you know, you, well, you wouldn't even say to her, "Did you get the gas?" But like, if he wasn't, if he wasn't there in time, hear she'd that. hear that 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 when he didn't bring it out on Friday or Saturday or whatever the day was, you wouldn't know about it being delivered all the days that he did deliver it on time. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't be um, impressed. Our overawed by the fact that Fanola and poor Joe McGrath came out on a snowy day with oh. a load of blocks or like she wouldn't consider that it was it wasn't that she was ungrateful now no, it wasn't it was just a little, just a little something that she didn't do she was always used to things that had them and yeah and then when she went in there like that she you know there was no point in being grateful in there there was nothing to be grateful for you know, talking about it, it might seem now that we've been saying that she's was so contrary and all that. She was a very generous person, and really a very kind person. Because anyone who loves animals the way she loved them, and well, I mean, she had the dogs, but it wasn't just dogs. She loved all animals, and anyone that does 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 an awful lot into them, an awful lot of good. So she was, and as I say, she when she'd get the few quid, you couldn't stop her buying. She'd be bringing in presents and all that kind of thing. No, no. It, when we describe her that, which was just to show her, no, that she was an eccentric, and eccentric people can be a bit difficult. Where well, if we had spent twenty years in a hospital, we'd be rather eccentric too. We're get exen- very well, eccentric as it is. <laughs> well, we know that, yeah. but you know, it, Johanna didn't get. She didn't really get institutionalized, mm-hmm. which was a miracle. But she was very generous, and when times were hard and we Fanola was collecting for, she would arrive here and she'd always have something for the children. She was awfully generous, and then at Christmas she'd have a Christmas stocking for them, oh. and I'd know she couldn't afford it and it would kill me. But you see, she wanted to do it, and only in later years did I realise that I should have accepted graciously. But I couldn't see her wasting her money on my tribe that had plenty. But she loved them and they loved her. And a funny thing about her, she used to bring Sarah and myself, yeah. you know, a present again at Christmas. But she didn't bring you gaudy things. You know, she... Um, put a lot of thought into Put it. a lot of thought. It, was, it wasn't cheap soap or, you know, it was always something that you'd use, not that you'd throw away or yeah. anything like that. That she had... An unusual. Yes, and she... Yes, and, and she had... You know, she had this sense of, um, what would I say? Aesthetic? I'm sure there's a French word for it, but I don't know. <laughs> no, the Irish word. Sense. No, it's not aesthetic, no. Oh, pardon no. me. No, I don't know what it is, but she, I know well what I want to say, but she had taste, I ah. suppose. 
She had taste, quality taste. When Hannah was in the hospital and the dogs, some of the dogs were left in the house and the house was in an awful state. We won't go into the, the stuff, but Mary Healy and Iris had to physically shovel out the manure out of that house. And they worked awful hard. Shit, in other yeah. words. And they, they, they worked awfully hard. And that's when she came home from hospital against medical advice and the place wasn't ready because we had plans for having it better. No, I can't remember the very first time I met her, but I have a funny feeling it was up at the local shop that she started going there on a daily basis for her bits and bobs. And um, that's where I would have met her mostly until later in the years when she needed help and needed to be brought to town and that kind of thing and needed a bit of shopping. But definitely in the early years, if she used to be local, you would meet her. And then, of course, she used to have to get... She, used, she had no running water and she had no toilet, obviously. So she used to have to come down here to get buckets of water and she used to go across... Darren Road, which would be just over past the shop, to the pump for water as well. So she she had to carry all her water, and I suppose that would have been the contact she made first was to come and see could she have water. Possibly that would be the first time we met her, yeah, Sean. Probably. So Garden was a was an acre, big like you know, and she spent. She was a lot always out pottering in it, she wasn't she? Spent a lot of the day yeah. doing bits around the garden, even though she never sold any vegetables or anything like that, but. She was always out around the back of the house every time you pass, you know, and a good, in good weather, She was weather, always doing obviously. something, you know. She was, mm-hmm. You'd always see her knocking around, the, maybe trimming the bottom of the hedge or filling a hole in it to keep the stock out. There was an awful lot of... of I was her bitter enemy for you a lot were, of years. You were for a long number of years, Sean. You were, really. But she shouldn't. She didn't like men one full stop, and that was it. But remember when we were doing one of the clean-ups up there, there was an awful lot of... of um, uh, bits and pieces she had written in little booklets and all those yeah, sort of yeah. things now I don't know where they ever ended know. up but there was a lot of we say jotters and I'd say she's probably spent a lot of time you know just writing little yeah, bits and pieces she probably was trying to write another book I'd imagine didn't she write bits for the local paper she did she yeah. did yeah yeah yeah. for the champion I think but it was very primitive it was, <laughs> it was sad it was dreadful to end your days like that you know but thankfully she went into the local uh, Sacred Heart and you know, was well looked after in the last days of her life but um, she she had cut her finger she was cutting a turnip wasn't that how it started and she treated her finger her two fingers herself I think she was, she was cutting a turnip and she got gangrene and she had to have the fingers taken off that's how she ended up being so disabled in the end she was well able to walk around and get around but she spent a fair bit of time in Merlin Park and had we went to see her a couple of times there and of course she ran us each time but that would be nothing new but um, she had to get her fingers off then and most of her hand removed so that's why she ended up in, in the home in town she wasn't able to even dress herself so I mean she had a hard tough life and you know you can't blame her for not trusting people she had a very hard end I think you know she had very hard yeah yeah she it wasn't easy when she was up there on her own, even at the best of times. No, it wasn't. Sure, it was dreadful. But she was. But she was very hard to look after. I mean, you yeah. know, if you, I used to try. I had small kids at the time. I used to try and bring her up to dinner every day if I could. Every day that I was at home, because I used to be on the road a lot with the kids. And uh, first thing she said, "What's for dinner today?" And he'd say, "Maybe chicken." And it had to be at one, not ten past. And she said, "Well, you know, well, I don't like chicken. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred pork today." At you know. And you'd, you'd just feel like throwing it in the door at her, but she'd, you'd, you'd take it and you'd go back up the same day for the same treatment again, you know. But um, 
you wouldn't see her worst enemy in the condition she lived in in her later years you know thankfully it wouldn't happen nowadays but she was a recluse and she didn't let, just wouldn't let anybody in on top of her and, and her dogs were her life and the dogs saw to it that nobody went in as well certainly <laughs> did <laughs> <laughs> yeah but as I said we were really not much help but they were just the little things that we would remember of her you know she was difficult and as I said she could have had a lovely life if she'd let us in on her, her little bits and pieces, you know. Sure, you could do with your best. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.